0: Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Lowe. We've all heard of the so-called starving artist, but why do some artists starve, at least metaphorically, if not economically, and others prosper? Dr. Ennio Piano, an assistant professor of economics and finance, and Rania Al-Bawab, A third-year doctoral student in economics have explored this question in The Artist as Entrepreneur, which was accepted by the Review of Austrian Economics in April 2021. Art for art's sake or art for money's sake or both after this.
1: Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. While their competition was virtual this past academic year, there's nothing virtual about the MTSU debate team's excellence. Forgoing the usual travel to other schools for face-to-face verbal duels, the students debated online, finishing first in the nation in team format for fall and spring competitions under the rules of the International Public Debate Association. More than 3,000 participants from more than 150 schools participated in the debates during the 2021 season. About a third of the contestants took part in team debate. The Blue Raiders won the tournament hosted by Louisiana Tech, captured the Novice Champion and Novice Top Speaker Awards in the University of Southern Mississippi contest, won the Junior Varsity Champion title in the University of Central Arkansas competition, walked away with the Novice Champion Award in the Tennessee Intercollegiate State Tournament, and took home more than 50 individual team and speaker awards for the season. And an MTSU alum is among President Biden's new group of nominees to fill one of four open seats on the TVA's Board of Directors. Beth Pritchard-Gear of Brentwood, the longtime Chief of Staff or former Vice President Al Gore, and a graduate of what's now the MTSU College of Media and Entertainment, must be confirmed by the U.S. Senate in a still-to-be-scheduled hearing. The TVA, a federal agency that provides electricity to 10 million customers across Tennessee and portions of six other states, has a nine-member board appointed by the U.S. President. Two of the nominees, including GEAR, would fill seats left open by board members whose terms expired May 18th. Two are vacancies created by the Trump administration. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com.
0: Dr. Piano, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: What theory did you pose regarding the artistic genius and the entrepreneur and when they are most likely to be one and the same?
2: In Austin economics, Austin economics is a tradition within economics, uh, brother. There is a strong focus on entrepreneurship. At the foundation of this theory is this notion of alertness. So basically, the reason that markets work according to this theory is that people have this ability to perceive profit opportunities. It's like they can literally see that there is a profit opportunity currently exists in the market. So they, they take action to, to, to kind of like get rid of the opportunity by making a profit. And so um, since part of my work is, focuses on artists, I thought about applying that to artists. The, the problem is that artists is, are very peculiar. Art in general is a very peculiar production process. And specifically, it requires some other kind of alertness. And so this is kind of like what I add to this literature is trying to frame uh, what artists do and what is required to produce art in the same, through the same lenses. Artists are artists because they're able to see a final product in their heads, right? They're able to perceive that they can create something beautiful out of the mundane, right? If you think of a painter, it's like, okay, you have a wall, you have some lime water, you have different pigments, different colors, you have some tools. Those things by themselves don't have any aesthetic value. They don't have any artistic value. It's the artist that has this ability to see what can be done with these materials uh, that's, that's what enables him to or her to get these materials, combine them together in very specific ways and produce something that does have aesthetic value, something that we recognize as having aesthetic value. I basically try to ask the question of when is that these two abilities to see something that other people cannot see, the ability to see profit opportunities and the ability to see beauty or the potential for beauty, when are they more likely to coincide right, in the same person, and when are they not like, are not going to be like, uh, likely to coincide. Like, so maybe different people are going to focus on different functions, different aspects.
0: You don't attempt to define high art and low art in the paper, but what is the difference between the two from a purely economic standpoint, not an aesthetic Ah. standpoint?
2: One economist uh, noted that uh, he works on, he makes like a little wooden figures, Like in his third time. So to me, they're beautiful. To me, that's art. It's like, yeah, that's not necessarily what I mean by art. But in order to make it as objective as possible, what I had in mind was the fact that people in the society within which the artist lives, at least generally speaking, perceives one form of art to be superior to the other. And of course, that's going to depend on the historical context, on the social context, so for instance, painting used to be the most important, the highest of all arts. Like, Especially if you, if you think about the medieval period and the Renaissance, they literally had a hierarchy of arts. To them, the, the major arts were painting, and then sculpture, and then architecture. Architecture used to be seen as an art. Today, we don't have the same kind of hierarchy. So for instance, we don't even have like a distinction between, say, painting and the visual arts more generally. Right. So for instance, today, photography is a very high form of art, but we do recognize that high art photography isn't the same thing as, you know, me taking a picture with my iPhone of a squirrel in the backyard. Right. So, again, it, it, it is kind of hard to point to a very strict or very hard distinction between the two. But societies do seem to recognize that there is a distinction. So, for instance, today we could ask, um, OK, what kind of art is shown in galleries? What kind of art is talked about in uh, professional magazines, industry-specific magazines? What kind of art is talked about in art history books or textbooks, college textbooks on, on the arts? Uh, I, I understand this is not like a very satisfactory uh, distinction, but it's the disti- it's a distinction that that's at least operational because it's it's a constant throughout history. Even in the Middle Ages, there was a, an understanding that there was a difference between different kind of artists and different products and today there's also a distinction that people understand even though we're not able to objectively point to it
0: there is a difference seemingly between the the artistic genius and the entrepreneur in that artistic geniuses don't often have the same attitude toward money as other people in other professions they're concerned with their creativity of course they want to make a living but they frequently find themselves needing someone else to manage the economic aspect of their lives. And that becomes easier, according to what you were saying in the paper, when economic times are good and more people have the wherewithal to invest in so-called high art than it is when economic times are not that great. And people will say uh, a Thomas Kincaid painting, which, you know, prints of which are mass produced and which have a certain kind of appeal to a certain kind of person, but who art critics would probably find to be beneath their standards.
2: In contemporary understanding of the figure of the artist, we do have these uh, kind of like this figure again of the artist as like the starving artist or the artist as somebody who rejects monetary or material considerations. The artist is specifically focused on making something beautiful, something that they perceive to be beautiful. While other industries, you know, the people that are involved in the production process, they tend to be focused on how can we please consumers? The most consumers possible, right? So that we can make the most revenues and the most profits. But then when you read the history of art, you find that it didn't always work that way. And specifically, what, what I found very interesting was that in the Renaissance, the artists that to this day we, we recognize the name of, right, the Leonardos, the Michelangelo's and so forth, they were business people. They were involved in the process of saving prices for their own work or of contracting directly with the patrons, with the people that were buying their work. Some of these people became extremely wealthy. They didn't reject the perception of them as being extremely wealthy. They, in fact, embraced it. A lot of these artists became some of the most important political figures other than economic figures of their time. I think that I joke about when I present this paper at academic conferences is that today we would never elect or we would never want to elect a, you know, starving artist as a mayor or like a member of Congress because we understand that they're not necessarily super focused on like material issues and political issues, like in the practice of policy. But Renaissance people didn't feel that way. They elected them constantly because they were esteemed members of their society, not just from an artistic perspective, also from a running a business perspective and being, you know, somebody who has knowledge of like different languages, for instance, or what's going on in different cities and knowledge of like geopolitics, we could say today. If the demand for artistic goods is such that basically what the artist perceives to be beautiful coincides with what the man perceives to be beautiful. The monetary incentive of producing art is now gonna distract or detract from the artistic consideration. So the two point in the same direction. To some extent, it's never gonna be fully the the same, but it's gonna coincide a lot more than if you have a societal demand for art uh, in which aesthetic considerations differ from those of the artist. So for instance, when you have so-called popular art, because people can afford it, right? People today can afford those prints. People today can afford uh, to go to like local galleries and, and stuff like that. So the fact that, that they have disability is gonna affect the direction of like the monetary compensation, right? So an artist that is very alert to the monetary compensation may decide to sacrifice artistic value for a higher monetary uh, remuneration, a higher material compensation. And so what happens then is that in order for high art to survive, in order for the art that the artist likes to produce, or the artist, I should say, prefers to produce, to some extent, the link between monetary compensation and artistic value needs to be broken. And so the artist must be insulated to some extent from the signals that prices produce. For instance, instead of being employed as a painter, you decide to become a, um, to start drawing for production companies like say Fox, that produces like cartoons for children or adults, like that's an alternative form of employment for somebody who's gifted in drawing. If you expect to make a lot of money from drawing for a production company, you are gonna be less likely to instead go and produce beautiful painting. That's how contemporary artistic markets work, at least for the visual arts.
0: We'll take a break right here. We will return in just a moment. This is MTSU on the Record. The MTSU Department of Art has the newest facility for visual arts in the state with approximately 50,000 square feet of space, including high-tech computers and computer-driven equipment for multimedia, graphic design, printmaking, sculpture, painting, and ceramics. We feature a visiting artist lecture program and an exhibition program that exposes students to work by national and international artists.
1: To find out more, visit mtsunews.com. The mission of the June Anderson
3: Center for Women and Nontraditional Students is to provide education, advocacy, direct services, outreach, and programming for the MTSU campus and surrounding community on gender-related issues. The center also assists older students who are trying to balance work, college, and family. It also sponsors a monthly legal clinic, career brown bag series, book club, and a newsletter twice a year. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com.
0: We're talking about the artist as entrepreneur with Dr. Ennio Piano, an assistant professor of economics and finance. In the paper that you write, you compare a couple of different periods in art history, the Renaissance and contemporary art. And I bet a lot of people would be surprised to learn that some of the Renaissance masters were not the only contributors to the paintings for which they received credit. Talk about the successful ones who could afford to hire employees for their shops and what those employees did.
2: We have this notion today, especially for painting, study in general for the arts, about the autograph painting, like somebody signed the painting and that's the person who is supposed to have actually done the work. In fact, today we're kind of obsessed about like originals as opposed to, to replic- replicas or a, especially in art history, art historians focus a lot on the question of is this a Raphael painting or is this a Raphael workshop painting, right? So, and they, and they study literally with different techniques, but they basically try to study both the brush and if they have like the ability to do an x-ray of the painting, they look at the drawing that is behind the painting, what technique was used there, and they look at whether it's consistent throughout the painting and they try to identify whose hands have been used to paint this specific section as opposed to this other section. So, and that's because the way the paintings were actually made at the time was a team effort. It required several people, many people were involved. And that's why the fundamental institution of Renaissance painting was the workshop. The workshop was what actually produced the painting. The artist was the person that was responsible for it. The names that we know today were the people were responsible for it. They were the business people. They owned the workshop. But they were not the only authors of paintings. So basically, the way that it worked is that you have a master. And the master, he's the one that mostly focuses on the vision. They, in the Renaissance, they call it the ingenio. Basically, it's like, can you figure out beautiful compositions? Can you figure out a painting that is going to look good? This master also did other things. Like, for instance, he was generally responsible for painting faces. Uh, so the faces of the, the main figures. And that's because, at least in the Renaissance, people had this understanding that sentimental, the emotional beauty of a painting was mostly related to the facial expressions, both the ability to represent facial expressions in a realistic manner, uh, but also the ability to really communicate something through the facial expressions, right? Artists generally, masters generally were responsible for this because it was so central to the actual beauty of the painting, to the, to the quality of the final product. But a lot of the rest of the painting wasn't really done by them, uh, so they had assistants. Some of these very high skilled assistants that focused on making, they call them studies for minor figures. Okay, we need to have like a kid in the background. Uh, Somebody else is going to go and figure out like what this kid is going to look like. And so they're going to, let's say, make small statues that then they're going to try to reproduce by drawing and figure out exactly, okay, what's the position that this kid is going to be, like what clothes is he going to be wearing and so on and so forth. Also, the the actual application of the pigments, the painting per se. In some cases, artists, masters were not involved in much outside of the faces at all. Like, so the skies, the big blue skies, they didn't bother with that or again the painting of secondary figures they didn't bother with that the painting of the application of pigments for clothing they didn't really bother with that there was a division of labor within the workshop that i think is uh, it's it's both important to understand how renaissance art worked and also i think it's important to be able to distinguish it from the way that we think about art today we associate art with the artist in a much stronger way than they did in the Renaissance.
0: I found this sentence in your paper to be intriguing. Economic value is subjective in that any commodity is only valuable in connection to its ability to contribute to an individual's goal of reducing perceived uneasiness. Can you unpack that for us a little bit?
2: Economics studies human behavior. So when economists talk about value, they're not talking about the actual value that something may or may not have. Economics doesn't have a theory of value. It has a theory of behavior, which relies on value as perceived by the person doing the behaving. Economists assume that the reason why water has value in human societies, is people have uses for water that are valuable to them, So it's subjective in the sense that there is a subject that values the water for a specific use. So this is very different from philosophical or moral uh, or ethical theories of value. that are theories that try to understand the value of things. Like, like economics doesn't try to understand the value of things. It just assumes that things are valued by human beings and then follows the consequences of
0: that. What entities exist today to help the artist sell his or her work? The two big auction houses, uh, Sotheby's and Christie's, seem to have cornered the market on that particular aspect of bringing art to people. Talk a little bit about that whole auction house process. They
2: play a huge
0: role, of course, in
2: the market for the visual arts today. Historically, the way that art was produced was through a commission system right? So the artist and the patient kind of like got together, wrote down a contract, what was expected of the artist, what was expected of the patient? the artist would produce it. That's kind of what you get, right? Like, and it could be, you know, say a mural painting for a church, or it could be a portrait. And that's kind of like when you look at the evolution of the arts, that's kind of what was going on. Today, instead, there is a separation between the two, right? So the artist produces a piece of art, one of these more complicated kind of like statues made out of like materials that, that they don't necessarily, they're very abstract, right? Like abstract art. This statue can either be sold or rented out to a gallery, or sometimes it's just bought by an auction house. And the auction house comes up with a contract with either the artist or the artist's agent. They set a minimum price, and they say if piece of art doesn't sell at above this price, we're just not going to sell it. But if it sells above that certain price, you get to keep a fee, but that's not the main source of revenues for these auctions. They also get to keep a share of the final price, uh, they get to keep 10% of the final price out of the artist's pocket and 10% of, uh, uh, of the final price out of the buyer's pocket. So they actually end up with 20% of the final price. So they clearly have an incentive to really try to get this piece of art to
0: the person who values it the most. Time for another break. We'll be back. This is MTSU On The
1: Record. The Concrete Industry Management Program at MTSU fills the need for trained personnel who know concrete technology and techniques. Our alumni go into the marketplace grounded in basic math and science and able to promote products or services related to the industry. Our participation in the academic common market ensures talented students in other states a chance to enroll on an in-state tuition basis. This is Dr. Heather Brown, director of the program. To find out more information on this or other university programs, visit mtsunews.com. The
3: Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com.
0: Dr. Ennio Piano is our guest. He's an assistant professor of economics and finance and co-author of The Artist as Entrepreneur, a, a paper which has been accepted by the Review of Austrian Economics. Toward the end of the paper, you mentioned possible future research that could be done along these lines into nonfiction writing, poetry, cinema with essentially the same criteria. And it occurred to me when I read that part of it, the stage, TV and cinema in particular have had more of a tendency over the years to split the artistic and the entrepreneurial aspects of the work, like Tom Cruise and his partner, Paula Wagner. Cruz handles the content of the movie. Wagner handles the business. Ron Howard and Brian Grazer. Ron How- Howard ha- is a director. He handles the content of the movie and Grazer handles the business. It doesn't seem to have been that way in the worlds of painting and sculpture as much as in these other media.
2: Think about like, for instance, movie making or or, uh, or the production of of TV shows. But mm. at least for movies and, and TV shows, there is an understanding this like, you know, artistic ones, uh, or like if, if one thinks of like, say, okay, well, the Sopranos are a are not the same thing as Grey's Anatomy. I'm just mentioning two random shows. People can appreciate both, right? People can appreciate both. And there is some overlap, but people do understand that the, the degree of, of like artistic vision that went into one is not the same as a degree of artistic vision that went into the other. Industries that have this feature where, there is the possibility of sacrificing art for revenues are going to show that separation. For most of the instances that you mentioned, I think that's exactly what's going on. By knowing more about them, I could possibly be, be working on them. I, that's, that hasn't happened yet. But but those are possible avenues for future research. Correct. Correct. So when you compare movies and TV shows, one of the first things that you, that you hear from people who know something about them, is that the person in charge of the movie is the director. Now, of course, the director has to deal with the production company, like the people actually putting the money down. But directors are the people who have to make the, the last call. If you don't trust the director to make the last call, you fight the director, you hire a different director. Or the director, if he doesn't feel like he's or she is trusted with making the last call, she may leave the, the position because we know that this happens all the time. In the case of TV shows, producers are the people in charge. In fact, in many TV shows, directors change episode to episode. It's a completely different kind of like context. I find that, it's, that this is telling us something about the role of the arts in the two cases. So in movies, we are very, at least the, the directorial choices have a much role in determining the final quality of the movie. In TV shows, we generally focus a lot more, I mean, they they do have a visual tone, a lot of these TV shows, but we generally focus on the evolution of the characters, the way that the storylines evolve, like plot twists and, you know, like uh, uh, cliffhangers and all this kind of stuff. How does the story go? Well, the story requires more for like like a long-term vision from the perspective of somebody who's kind of like designing the whole product, and that's going to be the producer. In the movie, that cannot happen. It has, characters matter, but they uh, matter relatively less than in TV shows. Like the storyline matters, but matters less because it's shorter. So this is where it gets interesting. Sequels became more important with movies in cinema. What you see is that producers have tended to grow in role, like so their their importance. So like if you think of like uh, Marvel Studio movies, there's a creative person that is in charge. And then he hires and fires directors the same way that you would in a TV show. And similarly in TV shows with like higher quality TV shows where you want to have like a more distinctive voice and a more distinctive style and directorial choices, they tend to have the director as also generally being the producer. And also like there's more of an overlap.
0: I think these conflicts will continue. And uh, I think uh, your paper is really fascinating. And it prompts a lot of thought and a lot of discussion. The Artist is Entrepreneur in the Review of Austrian Economics. that was accepted in April 2021. Your co-author is uh, Rania Al-Bawab, who is a third year doctoral student in economics. And our guest has been Dr. Ennio Piano, an assistant professor of economics. Thanks for being our guest today. Thank
2: you for having me.
3: We'll be right back. The Experiential Learning Scholars Program at MTSU gives students a chance to go outside the classroom and obtain hands-on experience in their chosen fields of study. They'll have the opportunity to give something back to the community through service learning as they gain acceptance for graduate study. Students should be able to select EXL-designated courses from major requirements and general studies requirements to complete the 16 to 18 hours of EXL coursework. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com.
0: MTSU's Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor offers undergraduate students a chance to study the culture and religion of the Jewish people and the Holocaust in an interdisciplinary program. Studies include history and culture, theology and philosophy, and the arts and social sciences. Courses tackle vital topics central to local and global awareness, including multiculturalism and the meanings of diversity, religious tolerance, and genocide. For the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Randy Weiler has the middle moment. More than 4,000 combined freshmen and transfer students are attending MTSU Customs Orientation through early August, becoming more acquainted with campus and registering for classes. New Student and Family Programs Director Gina Poff shares more. The on-campus piece is the exciting piece, because we get to share and show our university off to our new students. The ability to have people here and to interact with them is, is exciting for us this year. We really missed people last year. Hopefully the students will gain a good experience of the feel of campus. They'll get to interact with some of the academic pieces while they're on campus and then in the virtual aspect with their advising appointment the day following, and they will feel real confident about coming back to campus with us in August. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening.
3: MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.